On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I have the honor of talking with Dr. Jeff Kapersky. We talk with him about divine action and how it relates to God interacting with the world. So that, that means we're going to talk about the laws of nature, if there are any. That means we're going to talk about uh, miracles and how does that actually work. Talk about quantum mechanics. Talk about all sorts of good stuff as it relates to God interacting with the world. I think it's a fascinating episode. He's a philosopher of science, so he brings a ton of resources, a wealth of knowledge uh, in this area that is often not uh, brought to the table. So I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of questions that just simply go on on this topic that are oftentimes unanswered or not answered well. So I think Dr. Kapersky really helps us kind of lay out the land and understand what the different options are, some of the costs and the benefits. Uh, it's, it's really good stuff. So I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our, our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues. And I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we have a, a really interesting guest. I'm really looking forward to talking to him, uh, Dr. Jeff Kapersky up at Unknown School in Michigan, uh, we were just uh, talking about. Um, I'm super interested in this. We're going to talk about the laws of nature. We're going to talk about determinism. We're going to talk about divine action. So how does God act in the world and how does that relate to our understanding of the laws of nature? Uh, I think a lot of us probably have jumbled thoughts on this opinion and haven't really put them all, laid them all out and examined whether we actually have coherent thoughts about this topic. Uh, and I also read uh, a short thing that he put on the Henry Center website, interacting with Thomistic uh, understanding of causes, and I found it fascinating. So I'm really excited to talk to him about this. Uh, before we jump into the episode, though, I want to give him a chance to introduce himself to the listeners who may not know who he is, give, him, give us a chance, say, 30, 60 seconds, kind of lay, lay the groundwork. Who are you? Why, why should we be interested in, in listening to you? Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, well, I, I'm a philosopher of science. I uh, got my PhD from Ohio State, and most of my early work was on uh, chaos theory, if you've ever heard of chaos theory. Um, before that, I got a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. Uh, I took exactly one course in philosophy, and I decided that was enough. Uh, so... <laughs> Philosophy came around again later on. Uh, I've been teaching at Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan for almost 25 years now. So I, um, I once called myself uh, an evangelical, but with all the bad political connotations that comes along with now, <laughs> I, I use that term a, a lot less than, than I used to. You know, I, I, I feel that pain. You know, honestly, when I, I, I'm a Baptist, but when I introduce myself to people, especially unbelievers, I, I honestly don't use the term just because of all the baggage that it typically comes with, mm -hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. And I think yeah. the same is true. Evangelical, I, don't have, I don't even know what that means anymore. I know. I don't have a good alternative. So I'm still <laughs> looking for a good, a good alternative. I haven't, haven't found it yet. Yeah, Brandon may may get on my back for saying that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to go there on that. But <clears throat> well, uh, Dr. Kapersky, why don't you just, if you don't mind, sure, um, begin by just maybe sketch out the different views of divine action um, in as much detail as you think we need, uh, just to get, maybe set the table for the listeners, and then you know after you sketch the views, maybe give us what you think are one or two of the costs and benefits of each one of the views. Okay. Um, so let me do it quickly, and then you can you can follow up if you want me to fill in some gaps here. So I think the, the traditional view 
focuses a lot on divine intervention. So when God acts, he just, he just reaches in, he breaks the laws of nature, uh, you know, whatever the, whatever the natural order is, God is overriding that. And I think that's what, that's what most people, when they think of miracles today, that's, that's kind of the, the mechanism there. God's just, just breaking the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so the upside there, I think it's, it's relatively intuitive. And when you look at biblical miracles, it, it, it looks like that's what's going on. God's, God's reaching in, breaking the laws of nature. On the, on the downside, um, some worry that, some critics worry that this view conflicts with science. I think there's a lot of assumptions built into that. I don't think it's actually a, a great objection, but there, there's a worry there. The bigger, I think the broader worry is that um, uh, frequent interventions make the problem of evil worse. So if God intervenes some of the time, then the question is, well, well why not more? Why doesn't, why doesn't God intervene all the time? If God heals some people, but then not others, then it starts looking arbitrary. And that's, that's not something that we, th- we don't think God acts arbitrarily. So um, that's kind of bad. I don't think either of those are, are killer objections, but it kind of gives you an idea of what, what people are concerned about, what people are worried about. So on the far extreme, the second view um, is called non-interventionism. So on, on this view, God creates the universe. He sustains it in existence, but then that's about it. Uh, so deism here, this would be the, that would be the purest form of, of non-interventionism. But I think process thought also goes in here. Process theology also goes in here. So process thinkers believe that God calls to us, God draws us, but but God doesn't intervene. God literally can't can't intervene in the natural order. And you see a lot of 20th century uh, theologians like Langdon Gilkey and, and, and Rolf Boltmann and, and a whole host of others that just took a far more naturalistic approach. They just didn't see that there was a, a whole lot of supernatural stuff going on. And so they didn't think God yeah, literally intervenes. Now, the downside of this, I think, is that it, it does make it difficult to, to take biblical miracles seriously. Uh, answers, answered prayer, I think, doesn't, it's hard to see how that works on a non-interventionist view. I kind of doubt that a whole lot of people in your audience would, would like this view very much, mm-hmm. but it's it's definitely out there. But there's a middle ground. Um, the middle ground doesn't doesn't have a name until until I named it. It's called non-violationism. Um, and so on this view, God God can act in nature and he can do whatever he wants so long as he doesn't violate the laws of nature. That's the that's the main constraint here for this this third um, position. It's not that God couldn't break the laws of nature. He's got the ability to do so. He just chooses not to do so. And the argument here, the, the main argument, I think, is that if God if God does intervene, then it, it sets up a kind of inconsistency in God, a kind of conflict in the divine will. So like God ordains the laws of nature, but then comes along and breaks the laws of nature later. That's that's bad. A lot of a lot of theologians think God just God just wouldn't create a world where he had to break his own laws all the time. So that's the dominant camp. If you if you look in the literature on divine action right now, um, the dominant camp is what I'm this third one, what I'm calling non-violationism. There are lots of ways of working out the details. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a broad approach, and there's there's lots of different uh, types. My my main problem with it is that when you look at the different types and you fill in all the details, there really isn't much that God can do. It seems that you know in all the proposals that I can find, they really box. God in in such a way that there's there's not a whole lot of room left for for God to do anything. There's not much room there for divine action. So ultimately, what I do in my book 
is I, I give I give the non-violationist what he wants. I, I say, okay, here's a model where God doesn't violate his own laws, but I think there's a way of doing it where it allows for a lot more freedom on God's part. God isn't, isn't you know, nearly so boxed in uh, as on all the other non-violationist views that I've seen. That's helpful. And I, I forgot to mention the fact that you have your new book on this topic out. And <laughs> yeah, I'm going to link to it. <laughs> And the cool thing about it is that it's open access. And I have no idea who did that, if that was your doing or if that I th was that Templeton's doing. Yes, that okay. was a very ge generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. They uh, they, they bought me time off uh, from teaching to, to uh, write the book, but then they were worried about the cost of the book as, as well. And so they were the ones who suggested, hey, how about if we you know, throw some money your way and, and make this uh, open access? And so I was, I was very happy. Awesome. Absolutely. I'll, I'll take yeah. that money. And so, yeah. So if you're interested in this topic, which I think a lot of our listeners probably will be, it's you, you can go in there. It's free to download. Yeah. So it, I think it's on taylorfrancis.com. If you just Google it, you'll be. it's like the second thing that comes up. I think Amazon, the big behemoth, is the number one. But ignore them. Go to Taylor Francis <laughs> and download it for free there. Because I, I found it very helpful, especially that, that initial chapter on mapping the terrain, the mm -hmm. thing you just kind of explained. Mm -hmm. That was a really helpful way of kind of setting the stage for the different views on this and how different people understand it. Because I do think, I mean, I can see some of the appeal to me, it seems like to all of them to some degree. I mean, the idea of interventionism, I can see the appeal of God being able to kind of like do anything and everything. And it seems the non-interventionism, it, it does have some appeal to say that God created a world so perfect that he doesn't have to do anything. Right. That was Leibniz had that intuition. And yeah. it's been playing out that if God if God made a perfect watch or a perfect clock, then he'd make one that you, you didn't have to get in and adjust the time and you know adjust for daylight. It would just just run and, yeah. and be perfect. And so that's I think that intuition, yeah, still carries carries through today. And I, and I guess for for those of us who take the Bible seriously, we do see God acting in unique ways. I mean, I think the first thing that kind of comes out of me is the idea that the sun stood still in Joshua. If you take that literally, then you have to say, well, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. um, is Does that mean he's breaking the laws of nature or is he somehow doing this non-violationism, which at least to me, when I think about the world, that seems most intuitive to me. When I think about the world and when I think about what the Bible says, the middle ground seems like where I'd want to go. I'm not sure how I'd want to set it up mm -hmm. and how to make sense of it, but that does seem to capture the most of what I'm wanting to say. Um, so in thinking about these, obviously the laws of nature play a really important part in this. How we understand those kind of determines, uh, I think, where we kind of want to land. So when it comes to laws of nature, when did people start talking about the laws of nature and and why? Yeah, well, you know, people have always known that there are regularities out there in nature. So the, you know, the phases of the moon and the seasons and stuff like that, that's that's not something we discovered, you know, 500 years ago. Um, but they didn't start talking about laws of nature in, until about that time, until the time of the scientific revolution. So up to that point, at least in the West, things have been mostly Aristotelian. So, but that, that Aristotelian framework uh, really started to, to crumble uh, because you, know, you had things like Copernicus and Galileo um, bringing down geocentrism, which was part of the whole Aristotelian scheme. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. There were other people that complained that, that Aristotelian essences, that they were just kind of hopelessly vague and that really God didn't need them anyway. So Robert Boyle in particular thought that essences, for God to use essences, it's kind of like a middleman. So there's God and then there's essences and then there's the world. Well, God doesn't need a middleman. He doesn't need intermediaries to work through. So in, instead of essences, you, you had scientists like Boyle and Descartes and, and Isaac Newton, um, and they... And they appealed instead to the laws of nature, that, that the laws had been this, this something that had been ordained by God. And I should say, I, I called them scientists. The word science, sci, scientists um, wasn't coined until the 19th century. So they would have called themselves natural philosophers. I, I try to mention that every chance I get. So, <laughs> they, uh, and, and they all believed one of the things they all had in common was that God chose the laws, he ordained those laws, and then gave us the ability to, to discover them. Um, but they also believed that there were lots of different sorts of laws God could have implemented. So it's not like God was locked into giving us just the laws that we actually have in the, in the actual world. There's all sorts of choices God could have made. But then that, that presents an epistemic problem. So if there's all these choices, then, then how are we going to know? How are we going to discover the choices that God actually made because he's not telling us. So the answer to the question is um, experiments and, and observations that you can't you can't just discover the laws of nature by by just um, purely rational thought alone. So um, did you have a question? Oh, no, go ahead. OK. Um, so anyway, one of the things that comes out of this is that empiricism, which which we think of as being one of these you know, great hallmarks uh, of, of modern science, that's that's not something that that atheists and naturalists you know brought to the table. Uh, mm-hmm. That was originally motivated by by theism, and it's because of this need to go and discover on our own what laws God has actually ordained. We've got to do the work if we want to know what laws God has has implemented. So as far as you mentioned some older philosophers and natural philosophers, but philosophers today, what are the different ways that they um, define what a law of nature is? Because certainly they don't have, um, there's not one one uniform view of what a law of nature actually is, or even if it's a, a real thing. So um, can you maybe sketch out those different views for us? And when you're done with that, you can just, if you want to just go right into what your view is, we can we can go right into that from there, or we can uh, maybe if there's any follow-up questions, we can address those first. But okay, okay, um, sure. There's um, again, there's three three main options here for this question as well. Um, and so the first one is is something along the lines of what what Aristotle had in mind. So we might call this dispositionalism, not dispensationalism. That's that's a whole other mess. Okay, <laughs> you guys want to talk about that? I'm going to go get more coffee, and then I'll, I'll come back in a while. Okay. So on, on this view, um, on the disposi- dispositionalist view, every entity has some set of dispositions or, or causal powers. Um, those are both technical terms here that, that make it behave the, the way it does. So electrons repel each other on this view because they have this underlying disposition to do so. And, and salt has the disposition to melt in water. So every regularity that you can think of in nature, somehow or other, it, it traces to these underlying dispositions. They're, they're the things that are responsible for the, the regularities in nature. So on the second view, um, the second view is more along the lines of what, what these early modern thinkers had. Um, uh, we would call it a realist uh, view of laws. 
And on this view, there, there really are laws of nature out there in reality governing the way things go. Uh, so when, when you look in a physics book and you see you know, equations written down, something called Newton's laws, for example, those are descriptions of the laws that are actually out there in reality. So what's in the textbooks, that, that might be right, it might not be right, but the laws of nature just are whatever they are. They're, they're out there in reality governing things, um, and those are the these con controlling um, powers, or that's not the right word for it, but um, those are the things we're trying to discover mostly in, in chemistry and physics. I think that's how most people today think about the laws of nature, that, mm -hmm. that they're kind of running the show, and um, at least until you start studying philosophy, and then they, you get pushed into one of these, these other two camps. Um, <laughs> I think this middle one, which, as I'll say, is, is where, I, where I land, um, is, is the minority view uh, of the three. So the third one, then, is a, is a Humean interpretation of laws, and that's named after the, the philosopher David Hume. And so the Humean believes in, in, in regular events. He, he knows that there are these regular sequences of, of events, uh, but, but not laws, uh, not, in, not laws in the sense that there are laws out there governing things. So... The human says, yes, there are electrons. Yes, they repel each other, but nothing makes them do that. Nothing makes mm -hmm. them behave that way. And yes, salt, salt dissolves in water, but, but nothing guarantees that that's, that's going to happen uh, forevermore. Uh, there, are no, there are no laws. There are no dispositions that, that keep everything running kind of on a, on a you know, perfect track. Um, there just are these observed regularities, and that's it. That's that's all the laws. That's all the laws are. Um, just the regularities themselves. And so, metaphysically speaking, this is this is the leanest of the three. Um, yeah. If you're worried about yeah, a, you know, bloated ontologies and stuff like that, then you're you're probably going to be a, a human. So, as I said, my, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Continue uh, on. My my view, as I said, it's in the second category. I'm a I'm a nomological realist of some type or other. I believe there is something that keeps nature on track, and I believe it's the laws of nature that that do that rather than than say dispositions. But on my view, on my particular type of of nomological realism, um, I think ultimately the laws are God's decrees for how nature will behave, uh, and that that view is actually you know, if you if you look at what Newton and Boyle said, and really, most most theists in the Western world um, up until the 19th century, that was their view on laws. Mm -hmm. So you know, as you've gone through these, I I can't help but think. I think the first time I ever really actually started to think about the laws of nature from a theological perspective was I don't know how many years ago it was now, but I was reading Calvin's Institutes, and somewhere in the first book, he basically says their laws are like, I think, Humean, where there's no required way for them. He's not a realist and he's definitely not an Aristotelian, at least if he is, he's vaguely that mm -hmm. um, and, and doesn't really understand how that works, I don't think. So I think he's a Humean. And that made sense to me at the time. But then I read more uh, and I start, you know, getting into philosophy and I read Thomas and I read all of these great interpreters interpreters of Thomas. And it seems that almost everybody moves over to this dispositionalist camp. And I don't see a lot of people, except for maybe yourself, um, at least in the Christian philosophy sphere, arguing against the Aristotelian understanding of essences. And I'm just wondering, like, what are the, why would we not want to follow an Aristotelian understanding of, of essence and dispositionalism? What, what are the reasons that we would say that's not a, a very good view? Mm -hmm. Well, 
Let me say this before I before I criticize it. Um, I I am kind of a pluralist on these matters. I, I'm not trying to kill off dispositionalism altogether. I have a lot of dispositionalist friends and I, I like their program in, in the sense that I, I, I you know, let it go uh, and, and, and see where, where it leads and maybe it will, will bear fruit and all that sort of thing. So uh, when, I, when I argue against it, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to kill off these, these rival approaches, uh, but I, yeah, I, do, I do have a pref preference. Um, I think in many ways, um, it does go back to, to these early modern thinkers who, who explicitly rejected essences in, in favor of the laws. And when you, when you look at the progress they made then after making that move, it looks looks like that was the right decision. That you know, it was a really good move to make. So was that just, um, was their success in moving to a law-centric view and, and pushing out Aristotelianism, was that just a coincidence? And I, I think, well, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, you know, Aristotelians were, were wrong about a you know a, a pretty long list of things. They they believe that the heavens operated on, on fundamentally different principles than than what goes on here on Earth. They argued that atoms don't exist, uh, and they thought that that experiments were, were mostly useless. I'm actually maybe useless at best. Um, so I, I asked my Aristotelian friends. My, my, my Thomistic friends, if there really are essences, if you guys are right, and and you know, Thomas and Aristotle, they were they were right the whole time, then why did we have to explicitly reject them? Why did we have to push those to the side to make all this progress during the the scientific revolution? Uh, if if someone came along today and said, hey, you know, we, we should go back to Newtonian physics, we should give up this this modern stuff and go back to you know, go back to Newton. Well, you'd want to know why. You'd want an argument for why we have to do that, but you'd also Want an explanation for for why it was that relativity and quantum mechanics has just been so successful, you know, all this time? Because it really looks like those things are true. I think um, in, in this question about Aristotelianism, it's the same sort of thing. First of all, I want to know well, why do we need it? Why, why do we need essences? But then I also want an account for um, how is it that we've had all these advances in science that were based on laws and not essences? How do you how do you account for that? How do you account for this wild success of, of a more law-centric approach? So in principle, um, I think you could believe in both. You could believe in laws and essences, but they're not going to have equal priority. There's, there's going to be something that keeps nature from, from going off the rails at its most fundamental level, uh, and I, I have my money on, on laws. Okay, that, that's interesting and helpful. I, as I try to think through even what I think uh, about these different uh, positions and roles. And, I, and while I met, asked about the Aristotelian dispositionalism thing, I might as well ask about causes in general uh, on that topic. So Aristotle seems to have four different types of causes, um, he's got, you know, his efficient cause, his final cause, his formal cause, and his efficient cause. If those are the four, if I went over them right. Um, material. Yeah. Material. Okay. That's the other one. I said, I guess, efficient twice. I, was, I wasn't writing him down. So yeah. <laughs> Brandon, Brandon caught it. That's right. Um, so he, he has four different ideas of causes. And it seems like a lot of theologians have definitely made use of this. A lot of philosophers have made use of this to understand how just causation works in general, especially how God interacts. So there's this primary causation where I'm doing an action and then God is secondarily, I guess, doing something in a different, one of these four buckets of causes. And I think you argued against the four causal framework. And I'm interested in understanding why did you do that? And what would you propose as the alternative? Well, I, I, I think that they just aren't causes. Uh, we, Aristotle called them causes, mm -hmm. and I think that science has all the 
all those categories. Uh, uh, so like the material, mater what Aristotle called a material cause, uh, say if we have a statue, and this is, this is like the classic example, if you, have a, if you have a marble statue of a horse, well, it's material cause in Aristotelian terms is the marble itself. Well, first of all, the, to call it a cause today, uh, I would say it's, it's not a cause. It's just it's just the stuff, right? It's the stuff that makes up the marble. We didn't give up the notion of, of composition, uh, but we just don't, we don't call it a cause anymore. And so uh, all of those causes, so other than, say, efficient, yeah, I think that is the one um, that that is most like uh, our modern notion of causation. Uh, it corresponds a lot to, uh, to forces uh, in, in physics, different sorts of pushings and pullings and stuff like that. Uh, but all the other, all the, all the other three, um, science has the resources if it needs it uh, in, in terms of, again, talking about composition, um, uh, um, talking about even teleology. So you see things like the notion of function uh, shows up in, in various places in biology. Uh, and so that's, that, that, that seems teleological in, in some you know, rough, rough way. So we just don't need it. We don't, we don't need the, the, the other three causes. I don't think they're in any way fundamental. Uh, and if we need the conceptual resources to talk about nature the way Aristotle did, yeah, we, we've got those. Science, science has those. So, no, I, just, I, don't see them, I, don't, I don't see them as causes. Uh, it, it's just, again, um, that's just an older way of thinking that I, I think has been displaced. That makes sense. Mm. Jordan, do you have another question? No, you go ahead. All right. So if let's transition to maybe a, a possible objection to the view that you've laid out um, on, on laws of nature. So if, if laws are ultimately um, decreed by God, then the, and I think you deal with this objection in, in one of your papers that I was reading through last night. Um, let me see. Well, you at least mention it. Um, breaking laws of nature. This is in. I can't remember what journal it was in. Right, it's Phil Christie. Phil Oh yeah, Christie. that's right. That's right. Yeah. This is also in the chat in the last chapter of my book. I, I take this one that uh, you're going towards. Yeah. So how? So uh, this would make it seems God the cause of all physical events, which would be the the charge of occasionalism. So how would you respond um, to that charge um, if someone were to bring it up to you? Yeah. So the, the it's the specific type of nomological realism that I hold where um, the laws are God's decrees. That's the one I think that is susceptible, most susceptible to, to occasionalism. So, so the occasionalists, um, just for people who maybe don't, don't know or don't remember, um, the occasionalists denied that, that there are any real causes out there in nature. So they thought that, that only God can bring about any sort of change at all anywhere in nature. So when I push my, if I, if I want to push my coffee mug, it looks like it, that my hand is pushing the mug. But for the occasionalists, that's, that's not really what's going on. Uh, the reality is that when I want to push my mug, it's God who moves my hand. And then when, when the hand comes in contact with the, with the mug, once again, it, it's God pushing the mug. And the reason is because for the occasionalist, there's nothing in nature that has any sort of causal powers whatsoever. So mm -hmm. if anything's going to happen, if anything's going to change, God's got to do it. God's got to step in and make that change. So you could hold a view like mine. You could hold a decretal view of the laws of nature and, and believe in occasionalism. But I don't think my view entails occasionalism. So uh, in my view, God decrees the laws. This is just something that happens at creation. It's a it's a, it's a one time event uh, mm -hmm. at creation itself. He doesn't keep intervening after that mm -hmm. to, to bring about change. Uh, he declared that that like charges would re repel each other, and then 
after having done so, they, they continue to, to repel each other now and forevermore. Uh, that doesn't seem like the sort of thing that occasionalists had in mind. For them, it's, it's, the, it's a constant intervention, consistent, constant intervention all over the place, all the time, because if God doesn't intervene, then yeah, nothing happens. That is, that's not at all my view. Again, my, my view, this is something that happens once at creation itself. So no, I don't, I don't think my view is, is an occasionalist view, although I've been, I've been charged with that. So um, <laughs> I, I think, I think I can duck it though. I, I would really prefer occasionalism when you, when you, you, that comes up in the history of philosophy. Uh, you know, students just laugh at it. It's such a silly idea, you know, that that really there's no that God has to step in, you know, for for every causal uh, interaction. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't want to be an occasionalist, but I don't think I have to be. That makes sense. Um, Brandy, were you going to say something? Well, I, unless you had something you wanted to ask, I want I did want to make sure we we got to. Um this idea of breaking the laws and specifically I wanted to ask about miracles. So, um, in in a class at, at Southeastern under, uh, Dr. Greg Welty on miracles, we, uh, we use this book, uh, legitimacy of miracle by Robert Larmer. And, uh, so I wanted to read if if, I'm sorry, and this wasn't on the list of questions that we discussed earlier. if, If you want to punt this question, feel free. But, so he says, uh, if God creates or annihilates a unit of mass or energy, or it simply causes some of these units to occupy a different position, then he changes the material conditions to which the laws of nature apply. He thereby produces an event that nature would not have produced on its own, but breaks no law of nature. And then on the next page, he quotes uh, Jan, I don't know if this is Cover or Cover. I'm not sure how you say his last name, but this is his quote. Um, he says, Believing in events having supernatural causes needn't saddle one with believing that there are false laws of nature, laws having exceptions. Miracles are, so to, so to speak, gaps in nature, occurrences having causes about which the laws of nature are simply silent. The laws are true, but simply don't speak to events caused by divine intervention. So when I first read this book, I I really, it resonated with me a lot. I thought it made a lot of good points about how we can respond to, you know, charges that, you know, miracles are impossible and, you know, other things like that. If you don't mind, I wouldn't, I would like to get you to comment on maybe how far away from this view that I've just read your view is, or how close, how close your view is, uh, when it comes to how God intervenes, uh, when it comes to miracles. Right. So, um, yeah, Larmer and I are, are relatively near neighbors. So yes, I'm, I'm in the same neighborhood as him. He, uh, uh, he's a dispositionalist about laws, though. So he likes he likes some of the book, and he doesn't like other parts of the book so well. Um, uh, so uh, so in some ways, I think the quote that you read, yes, um, I, I think that's that's most of what's in there. Uh, yeah, I, I could agree with. So you're you're in the right neighborhood. That I would say. I would just I I think um, for for Larmer and then um, my my other kind of near neighbors and all this would be people like uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, William Alston, uh, Del Ratch. They're all doing something along the lines of what you described, although they're not um, they're not dispositionalists. Um, and then Larmer and uh, I think Plantinga both refer back to C.S. Lewis. Uh, so he's got a nice little quote uh, in his Miracles book, which I don't I don't think I quote it in my book, but I give a I give a citation uh, for the quote. So so yeah, this idea that there are laws of nature, 
but the laws of nature don't lock down every event. They're not determining each and every event. And there are changes you can make that then the laws um, you know, adapt to. That, that very much is my view. Um, I think if the, the main contribution um, to my book is to take uh, Larmer's work and some of these others um, and, and just put it on a more, um, a more rigorous foundation. Uh, but, but yeah, you're in, you're in the right neighborhood. So, and help me if I'm not understanding. So if it seems like to me, Larmer is saying that we have the laws of nature, but then when God supernaturally acts, the laws of nature simply just don't apply to that situation because, well, that's not a natural environment any longer because we have a supernatural event on our ends. Are you saying that as part of God's decreeing the laws of nature, he he decree it part of that decree is that when he supernaturally acts the there's a different law that applies or that the i guess that's where i'm a little fuzzy okay um not exactly so the answer okay. is not not exactly okay. so let me, let me kind of let me try to take you through it um kind of from from the top and then see see if this this makes sense um and you can you can follow up so um when you look when you look at the physics now you do have to pay attention i think closely to the what's going on in the science um the laws are important but yeah, they aren't, they aren't the whole story. So if you think of a, if we, if we start rolling a ball down a table, for example, um, if you want to predict the behavior of the ball, then of course you're going to know the laws. They're going to be really important. There's a whole bunch of other things that, that you're going to need to know as well. You're going to need to know the, the initial velocity of the ball. You're going to need the coefficient of friction of the table. You're going to need the angle of the table uh, and, and so on. There's a whole bunch of things that you're, you're going to need to know that, that help determine the, the behavior of the ball. But other than the laws, these, these things about the initial velocity and the angle of the table, those are non-nomic elements, where non-nomic just means not law-like. And each of those can change. Um, so as the ball starts rolling down the hill, if I now lift the table a little bit more, there's a whole bunch of things that are going to change, but the laws are not going to change. Mm -hmm. okay? Gravity is going to be exactly you know what it is. Newton's second law of motion, it's exactly the same. So I haven't, I haven't broken any laws in, in lifting the table. The laws just adapt to the changes that, that I make or that you make. We, we make these sorts of changes all the time. So my main thesis is what, whatever changes we can make without breaking laws, God can do the same thing. So if God introduces the same force on the table that I was just talking about and lifting the table, the laws will adapt to that change just as if I had done it or, or you had done it. The, the laws of motion don't care where, where the new force comes from. So in general, um, the laws just they just adapt to change. They don't they don't break. They 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 flow. That's my that's my slogan for this. Mm -hmm. The laws of nature never break, they flow. Um, but there are different sorts of laws here. So what, what you read from Larmer and Plantinga also does this too. Um, he, he thinks that any time God would act, the laws just don't apply. That that really. That really that, that line really only applies to conservation laws, and mm -hmm. and that really is the the issue. That's going to be the only issue in, in terms of um, uh, of breaking laws of nature. Um, some writers have argued that that if God were to do something like I just mentioned, lift, lifting up the table, that's gonna that's gonna violate conservation of energy. Uh, and that's 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 like their really big objection here. The thing that they miss, and this is something like like what you mentioned, is that conservation laws are are 
uh, conditional. Uh, if you actually look, this literally is textbook science. When you look at the definition, definition of conservation, it only applies to, to closed or, or isolated systems. Mm -hmm. So if I, if you take a grandfather clock, you can consider a grandfather clock to be a, a closed system just working away. Uh, but now if I reach in and touch the hands, well, it's, it's not a closed system anymore. Now it's, mm -hmm. it's an open system. It's, it's, I'm, it's interacting with its environment. So when that happens at the point where it's an open system, conservation of energy, it just doesn't apply anymore. Mm -hmm. So I want to say exactly the same thing about God. If, if God interacts with a system, whatever it is, then that system is not closed. Maybe it was, but it's not, it's not at the point of God's interaction. And if it's not closed, then conservation doesn't apply because, again, being a closed system is a necessary condition for conservation to even apply. So if conservation doesn't apply, then you haven't violated the conservation of energy. I don't violate the conservation of energy if I touch the clock. God doesn't violate the conservation of energy if he interacts with the clock because it's no longer a closed system. So this is a really simplified view <laughs> or simplified version of what I propose in the book. I think things are a lot more, more rigorous there. But again, the bottom line is, is that that the laws of nature they they adapt to change um, they they flow they don't break I think that's true when we act and we change these non-nomic conditions I think that's true when God acts and changes these these non-nomic conditions I think that's that's yeah, really helpful it is definitely thank you <laughs> and you know as you were explaining this it just I to me it drives home the reality that uh, for whatever reason you know, I'm sure there's a lot of cultural reasons that Christians, particular in America, seem to be afraid of science, but how useful philosophy of science uh, can be for us understanding um, how we should understand God and how he interacts in the world. Because, uh, I mean, I personally think the Bible isn't a scientific textbook. It's not telling me everything there is to know about the laws of nature. So a lot of ways I'm trying to figure out how do we understand the world in light of what the scriptures say? And I brought, I, I have a question, I guess a specific question. I'm curious how you would interact with it. Sure. Um, and I know I mentioned Calvin earlier, so I figured I'd pull him off to see if, if I was quoting him right. Uh, so, so for those who are interested in book one, uh, what is this, chapter 16, section two, he's talking about miracles. And he says, the sun does not daily rise and set by a blind instinct of nature, but that he himself, to renew our remembrance of his father fatherly favor toward us governs its course. So he goes on to say that, I guess, everything, seasons, all that stuff is governed by a new and special providence of God, uh, and that there is no universal law of nature. So, okay. So, yeah. Um, what I would say is there, there are two different versions of, of nomological realism in play in what you just said there. So yes, there's no law of nature the way most nomological realists think of it. There's no, there's no power out there in reality that's governing. Because again, on my view, ultimately um, what the laws of nature are or God's decrees. Right. So actually, from what you read, I don't, I don't think Calvin, again, I'm no expert. I don't yeah. know. I haven't, I haven't researched this on Calvin, but he sounds a lot more like a decretalist. He, he sounds much closer to my view yeah. than he does a dispositionalist. He's not appealing to essences or, or, or anything like that. He's talking about God and God's direct governance. And, and so, yeah, that's, 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 that's my view. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. That's and yeah. uh, when, as I thought back to it, it seemed very similar. Um, 
so I, I am curious. This one instance, I think there's a lot of miracles that make sense that I could be like, oh, yeah, he could, you know, lift yeah. the table or whatever. But right. the one that I, I brought up earlier, the idea that the sun stood still, um, is that possible or do we need or would you say we need to reinterpret that to say that, you know, God just brought a mirror and made it look like the sun was still there yeah. or, or something crazy to fit with the laws of nature? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be it would be a very big miracle if God and it, and it, would, and it would have consequences too. It's yeah. uh, uh, the mechanics of it um, would would be bad in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so so my own view on that uh, would be that yeah, it's probably a perceptual thing. That yes, from from their point of view, it absolutely looked like you know for everybody looking in the sky that the, the sun uh, was still. Uh, but I think probably yeah, the, the, the mechanics of the solar system uh, didn't change. That the, the Earth actually literally didn't didn't stop revolving um that makes sense uh, and, and again because the, if, if if it did uh it would be really bad for like people living on the coasts <laughs> because uh, <laughs> because you'd, you'd have tsunamis and and stuff like that and so yeah i think probably it was it was a perceptual thing that everyone and again it, it, it certainly is a miracle from their yeah. point of view it, it still is the case the sun stood still so so something big happened here god certainly did something but i think it was it was probably perceptual uh, on their part that was the miracle yeah Okay, so as we've talked about all these all these things, I think um, for those listeners who are really interested, they're going to want to read more on it. I know we've got your book that we're we're gonna uh, share, but are there any other like articles or books that people should be reading to be interacting with this literature? Especially, I know there's probably a lot of theological work talking kind of about divine action generally, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot that's interacting with what you're doing, the philosophy of science side and the laws of nature and how that works with God's action. So is there, are there places that we can go besides your book or is yours kind of like the one-stop shop that we should all definitely go to. Well, I, I do like, um, I, I did mention um, Larmer's work. That, uh, you, you said, he, you mentioned The Legitimacy of Miracle. That was the book, Brandon, right? Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, yeah. So um, I think that's the most accessible one in trying to get you know, an overall picture uh, of what's going on here uh, that, that I, I think is good. Um, although that's not, that's really not what you were asking for. There's not, a, there's not much philosophy of science in there, um, nor is there an, an, another one with Plantinga's um, Where the Conflict Really Lies. Uh, where the conflict really lies: science, religion, and naturalism. That's a really good book. Again, gives you this this broad perspective perspective on divine action. Um, not a philosophy, not a, a ton of philosophy of science. Um, I think there's another kind of obscure edited collection um, called. Uh, philosophy, science, and divine action, and that's written mostly by by the other heavy hitters among the the non-violationist camp. Um, so people like Nancy Murphy, uh, Robert Russell, John Polkinghorne, they all contribute to that. And, and there's there's more there's more science, there's more philosophy of science um, going on in there. But but really. In, in science and religion in general, no, there, there really aren't that many philosophers of science um, who, who have entered into that that, that space, uh, and, I, and I think it would be good if there were more of them, <laughs> because there, yeah. there are people who are, have expertise in in theology. There are people who have expertise in, in science. You have some some scientists who, who want to you know, talk about talk about religion, uh, but a lot of the things that they talk about, a lot of the controversies are actually they're not. Matters of, of theology, properly speaking, they're not matters of science. They're actually matters of uh, the philosophy of science and the philosophy of religion. They're in this, mm -hmm. this middle ground, uh, but there aren't a lot of people who have expertise in, in both of those who are writing on those topics. And so, yeah, I do, in some 
in some sense, I feel like I'm, I'm filling a gap. Uh, there's a need for analytic philosophers to be in this space. And so, um, yeah, to, to some small degree, I, I do feel like I'm, I'm kind of unique here. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I hope you continue to write and publish things because I'd like to read them and learn from them because uh, I do not have any of the experience the expertise in the science realm, though I think it's fascinating. I'd love to learn more about it. Um, I'm just not there yet. Uh, so for those who are interested in following your, your work as you put out new things or a, a, as you, um, I guess, enter new, new discussions, are there ways that people can follow you easily? Uh, do you have a website? Do you, do you use social media a lot? Um, I'm on I'm on Twitter, so you could you could search for me under under Jeffrey Kapersky. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, there's also um, just kind of academic social media like uh, uh, what is it? Academia.edu is that it? Um, so all my um, all the drafts of my papers, uh, you know, are, are on there, um, and then um, you know, like links to the book and stuff like that. So I, I do up, update um, you know that that academia page um, uh, frequently. Okay, awesome. Well, I, I've really enjoyed talking with you on this, and, yes, and I to- yeah, I totally forgot to ask you about quantum mechanics, <laughs> but you know that would probably take another whole episode. That to takes a little that bit, out. yeah, because <laughs> you know. Just correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like there were a while when I was reading about quantum mechanics, it seemed like there was one understanding of it. And then suddenly I started reading stuff and I realized that there's a lot of different ways to understand it. Yes. So it became really confusing to me. Is that right? Well, yeah, there's there are different interpretations. So the, 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 the basic... I mean, the science itself, the, you know, the, the basic equations, kind of the, the fundamental recipe of how you use Schrodinger's equation and all that. Everyone's agreed about, about how, how that works on the ground. But what's it mean? It's interpretation. There are, you know, there are, there are lots of different interpretations. So the standard one, something um, that kind of the orthodox view, something in line with what most people probably wrongly call the, the Copenhagen interpretation. Uh, yeah, that's where you have these, these fundamental randomness and all this quantum weirdness and stuff. But uh, among among both uh, philosophers and physicists, that's somewhat on the decline. Uh, and so, uh, which which you get as kind of the, yeah, the, the standard, even textbook, undergraduate textbook view is not how, how most people are, are interpreting quantum mechanics these days. Yeah, because I found that because it, it seemed like a lot of theologians would just kind of like to say, hey, quantum mechanics right. example of complete randomness, therefore uh, determinism is out the window. It's It's impossible because we have this example. But then I started reading stuff saying, well, that's not necessarily the case. So it became all the more murky to me of understanding how that actually works. The interpretations on the rise these days, um, the, men, the many worlds interpretation and, and, and Bohmian mechanics, yeah, they are they are fully deterministic. And so it may it might be if you had to place a bet uh, you know, at, the, at the turn of the next century, will, will we still believe that quantum mechanics is um, in, intrinsically random, that there are these fundamentally ontologically random events? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you want to, want to take that bet. Uh, the, ex, the experts, yeah, might, might end up saying, yeah, you know, we kind of thought so at one time, but here's this better interpretation, and it gets rid of all the, uh, all the, the, the not all the weirdness, uh, but it gets rid of the, the fundamental randomness. Yeah, it would restore determinism uh, back like it was under Newtonian mechanics. Awesome. Well, I, I've had a ton, of, a ton of fun, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. I think you're our, our new resident scientist uh, <laughs> on the podcast, so we'll, we'll have to, to bring you back on to talk about other issues and, and topics if you're up for it. I'd love to. <laughs> awesome. So for our listeners, those who've been listening, uh, we thank you for tuning in. Uh, do let us know 
thoughts, questions. Uh, what do you guys want to hear about, especially when it relates to the philosophy of science? I think this is a fascinating area that a lot of Christians struggle with um, in understanding how things work. So if there are areas you want us to talk about, let us know. Uh, and we thank uh, Dr. Kapersky for taking his time to talk with us. And for those who've been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.